Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Hey, good morning, church. Let's go ahead and take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to try to finish that chapter today as we're talking about how our lives are different um, once the Holy Spirit uh, comes in and empowers us to uh, to perform the works and the deeds of Jesus Christ and to continue His kingdom and uh, to manifest His kingdom on earth. And uh, I, I just, I think more than anything, one of the things that I've learned as we think about empowerment is not what the Holy Spirit will do, but what He has already done. Uh, so it's it's not about it's not about us asking the Holy Spirit to do something. It's about us learning how to align our lives with what He has already accomplished for us. I, I don't know that it's a secret, but I know that it's something that most Christians don't live in. And so, what I really have been praying for for us as a church is to learn how to live in the empowerment that we already have. That power that uh, that that uh, the, the indwelling of the Spirit is already available to us. So it is about aligning our priorities and aligning our thoughts, aligning our passions and our ambitions and, and our entirety of our lives up with what God has already declared. And that's what the early Christians were learning to do. It wasn't that they were out of their um, abilities to decide for themselves or that some spirit had overwhelmed them and was forcing them to move as puppets. It's as they were learning to allow the Holy Spirit to do in him what he wills instead of resisting and, and holding on to their, to their worldly ways. So I, I, there's a fine line between understanding that and not understanding it. And I do believe that sometimes we, we dip into both sides. And so I hope that as we learn this and begin to develop habits, I think that is the only way to stay on one side of that is to develop godly habits and to truly every day trust the Holy Spirit's work, His provision, His work in our life and His, His words in our lips and His love in our heart. And, uh, and maybe we can learn to manifest Jesus in ways in the River Valley that we've only, only dreamed of and only read about in in the Word of God. So let's begin in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Um, I know that, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to preach. Uh, but today what I want to do is just to read the whole passage of Scripture and, uh, and I will stop and elaborate at different times and, and kind of work through it exegetically. Uh, that way we get to the, to, to the end, we'll, we'll draw out some, some takeaways and uh, put some things into practice. So let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer and ask for the reading of His Word. Lord, You promised a blessing for those who will read Your Word. And so today, even just as we read the words, I pray that Your favor would be upon us. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would illuminate within us and that we'd be able to walk uh, in obedience to Your plan and to Your will in our life. And so I just pray over the reading of your word and over its preaching, uh, even the commentary. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as, as we just work through this passage, that you'd be in every moment, in every word, and you would do your perfect work in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done. This is one time, but they were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This was no secret ministry. This was a very public ministry, and it was a regular ministry. And they were all together. Uh, this word is hama 
thamedon, and it means in one accord. So Luke, in the English, it's translated a little differently here that they were all together as if they were in the same proximity. But what Luke is trying to get across to us is that, that they he's speaking that they were all in one accord, that they had the same heart, they had the same soul. This is a continued uh, experience that they were experiencing. When the church experienced unity, the Holy Spirit was truly free to do whatever the Holy Spirit willed to do. Uh, so they were in all one accord, and uh, you know the the greater display of the power of the Holy Spirit is always followed uh, following the unity of of the believers. It says they were in Solomon's portico, and I think that's specific because this is the second temple. The first one was destroyed, but uh, this is the second temple. And in this temple, there were lots of colonnades and alleyways, and and lots of gates, lots of uh, covered porches. If if it, you know if you can think about that, and so these early Christians seem to gather under one of those. And Solomon's portico was actually a specific one that was reserved for all peoples. You know, so you had the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews and the court of the women and the court of the foreigners and, and all of these sorts of things. But, but this particular area was reserved. Anybody could go there. And that's where we find the first church is a place where anyone could go. And that's where, and that's who their ministry was to. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them. Well, I suppose not. So let me, let's do a real recap as to why it would say this. None of the rest dared to join them. This is either the other Jews who was letting, almost letting the Christians have that certain section of the temple. It also may mean that there were a lot of people who used to be following them that are not really following them as closely anymore because you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira last week at church. Um, and I don't want to take any chances, right? I mean, there's not, uh, I, I, in this early church, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they're lying and because they're disobedient. I'm probably going to limit myself and, and whew, there might be some things in my life. I don't know if that's one of the deadly ones or not. So as you might imagine, Ananias and Sapphira incident would reduce uh, the, the level of casual commitment. And, uh, you know, I think that would probably reduce the level of casual commitment in our churches today, too, if... If from time to time people were disobedient and dropped dead as a result, I believe everyone would kind of tighten up a little bit or they would certainly walk away. But the people held them in high esteem, talking about the apostles. Well, why would they hold them in high esteem? Well, because of the miracles that they had worked, because of the servanthood that they demonstrated, because of their selfish uh, selflessness, uh, because of their liberating uh, teaching and the authority that they spoke with and the confidence that they had and the boldness that they had. And it was a it was a matter of we really appreciate all that you guys are doing for us. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. You know, purification will do that. And I'm talking about the purification of Ananias and Sapphira, where God is establishing the church for the first time, and He draws really clear lines. And it does weed out the weak commitments. It does the, the leisurely faith, the, uh, the mere Christianity, the ones who might be on the fence a little bit. So it's, it's time to, it's time to put your faith in Jesus Christ or it's time for you to, to maybe make another decision. But when you put together the people who are truly committed, who are truly connected with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is going to have a chain reaction in ministry power as well. So in, in, in it, today, we, we send t tend to magnify, you know, large churches. We call these large churches, uh, you know, 
effective or you know maybe maybe more successful and and today we tend to uh, to look at success much more than we look at fruit uh, so much so that we look at the numbers of those that attend a church rather than the number of those who are saying yes to to discipleship we've lost the sense of the value of be, being a pure people and we're trying to be a numerically popular people. We're uh, uh, settling for being influential rather than being pure. So listen to this. You go all the way back to the beginning when God first establishes His people. When God's people were the largest, that's when they were the weakest. But when they were the purest, that's when they were the most powerful. So there are some lessons there that I think we should be able to draw ourselves. And so uh, we also learn here that the gospel is for is for everyone. And so more than ever, we move from 12 men to 120 people to 3,000 people to 8,000 people. And now more than ever, many more people, both men and women, verse 15. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. The sick were among those who weren't often permitted to be in public, uh, but there was such an openness, such an approachability, such a almost a drawing of the broken and of the sick and of the wounded, uh, and and people felt safe and confident to bring their loved ones here to these to these miracle workers. So that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now I'm going to just tell you this is a a rather weird text. Uh, it's, it's very debated and debatable, uh, but I do believe as we work our way through it, it requires a few statements. So the, the passage never says that it worked. It never says that because of Peter's shadow, they were healed. Now we know they were healed, but we don't know if that's specifically because of the shadow or not. Maybe it's sort of kind of like the, the pool of Bethesda. You remember when uh, you know, Jesus was walking to the, to the water and, and he sees the lame man there and, and he says, why haven't you gone down to the pool? Because the angels come and swirl the waters and the ones that are the first ones there get healed. Well, we don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it doesn't seem to be true. But it gave people an opportunity to release their faith. It gave them something tangible by which they were able to release an element of belief, very similar to maybe the the woman with the issue of blood coming and touch, touching the, the hem of Jesus' garment. The hem of Jesus' garment didn't heal this woman. It was an opportunity for her to release her faith in Jesus Christ. I think about Paul and his sweatbands as he would work, and they would take those sweatbands and they would distribute them out and people would be healed. Was it the sweatbands of Paul that healed people? Of course not. It was an opportunity for people to release their faith in the healing power of Jesus Christ. Maybe Peter's shadow is the same way. They're not trusting in Peter. They're not trusting in Peter's shadow. But this is an opportunity for them to release their faith and trust Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, uh, for whatever for whatever reason and whatever explanation, uh, people are are being healed here. The people are also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. Now, this is very important here because they're bringing demon-possessed and demon-oppressed, and they're bringing sick viruses and diseased people and lame people and wounded people and broken people. And, and this begins to be some of the, the movement of the very first 
church. Now, if you remember one of Jesus' last statements to them just before His ascension was to go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, the disciples were having a difficult time obeying this command. They had grown rather comfortable working in, through the temple here in Jerusalem. This seems to be their way. And so here we have people coming from outside to them. But the goal was for the church to go to those that are outside. And so God is still using them and He is still building them. But up to this point, I don't know if we can call them disobedient, but they are reluctantly uh, moving into broader ministry and moving beyond themselves. And so in just a few chapters, I don't know if we'll cover that uh, or not yet, but uh, in just a few chapters, God is going to direct them out of Jerusalem and He's going to have to do it through persecution. And you know, God sometimes will do that. He will, take, uh, he will take difficult days and allow difficult things to happen to us to cause us to consider things that we wouldn't, call, we wouldn't consider without the pain. And so we have the first church experiencing some of the same things that we have to experience, which is with difficulty often comes greater ministries and more opportunities to, uh, to, to uh, minister to those in the name of Jesus. So back to verse 16. Uh, and they were all healed, and uh, all people were included here. I love how it says even men and women. Uh, this is relatively new for men and women to be able to have a, a, an appeal uh, together in the same uh, vicinity. Well, in this passage of Scripture, we see the truest symptoms of love and the acting of the gospel. Uh, they're working here in, in one place. Uh, we also see the mission of the church, and we see the purpose of the believers, uh, which if you have forgotten, because you've not heard it face-to-face uh, -face in a while, but it is to help people find and follow Jesus. So look what is happening here as Peter is working and ministering, and all the apostles are, are working and ministering. Uh, people were saved spiritually. People were healed physically, and people were delivered emotionally. And I think that is still the purpose of the church, is to help people spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is the only way to do that and bear fruit. Now listen, Luke, as we shift gears here, Luke always paints two pictures up until this point. He, he continually contrasts two different scenes. The church at work by itself, which continually thrives. I mean, every time he talks about the, the church itself, he's talking about uh, joy. He, he uses the word grace a lot. He talks a lot about power. He talks about authority. He talks about unity in every context. And a lot of time, the working of miracles. I mean, these are great days. And if we're not careful, we, we tend to focus only on that one picture that Luke is painting. But Luke also paints another picture, and it's the church in the world. And that doesn't always go so great. When he talks about the church in the church, that's awesome. We all want that experience. But when he talks about the church in the world, that's where we deal with threats, fear, pressure, prison, violence. We see lots of... Uh, fighting and, uh, and debating. But he separates these two worlds with a, uh, the word but. So this is how you can always know which world Luke is referring to. So there is revival, but. There is unity, but. There is generosity, but. And now here there is ministry, 
But, look at verse 17, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the uh, political powerhouses of their day. They far outnumbered the Pharisees. Uh, they didn't really, uh, they, they were the, uh, the political party with all the clout, uh, with all the ability to make the, 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 the political decisions. They were also the progressives. We would have called them the, the liberals of the, uh, of the ancient world. And so while we're here, let's go ahead and talk about that in comparison to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the conservatives. Uh, but when it came to Jesus and to Jesus' people and to the gospel, they were very bipartisan. And they were on each other's side and worked together quite well. But here it says in verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. Now, the religious leaders are rising up against the the apostles, the first church. Now, listen, what could they possibly be against? Go back and read that. And you see, what could they possibly be against? What would they be saying? No, we believe we should have more sick people. No, we believe that, that people should be giving less of their assets away to people in need. We, we actually think there should be more demons. We think there should be more hate. Uh, listen, the problem wasn't what they were doing, what the disciples and the apostles were doing. The problem wasn't what the uh, the people were experiencing the problem was whose name was being mentioned uh, the the problem was the the competition that the political parties the religious groups uh, were experiencing when it came to the tension between them and Jesus Christ and uh, the authority of God and his word uh, ultimately, they didn't have the power that they wanted. Their power was being threatened. Their control was being threatened. And this is the problem with religion and religious people. They want control and they're willing to fight for it. And they'll use God and they'll use truth and they'll use their opinions to manipulate for it. So people who love Jesus love ministry and are for people. Okay, so let's think about that again. People who love Jesus love ministry. They love ministering to people, and they're for people. It's generally how you can tell the difference. People who are religious and love their opinions are not for ministry. They're for their opinions, and they're not really for people. They're, they are for themselves. And so what happens is it leads to jealousy. I want what you have or what you can have. And this led to criticism privately, and that private criticism is going to lead to action publicly. Now, I wouldn't want to draw a whole lot of parallels, but the church still fights this a lot with legalism or you know, the, those who, who are focused on uh, the do's and the don'ts. And this is, you should look like me, and you should think like me and act like me. And if you will agree with me on everything, then you can fit into my club and a lot of a lot of people still work within that 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 group and so if somebody is outside that and is is trying to come to the grace of Jesus Christ chances are they're going to be criticized for their for their struggles and what that will eventually do is it will lead to public action i mean have the disciples done anything wrong not not by our estimation but they were in the way they were in the way of someone else's desire for control now, it would have been fine if they'd have just kept their faith private, if they would have just kept following in private, but they just kept making it public. They kept going to the most public places and speaking to the most public 
people. And this is still how the world works. As a pastor, I deal with this often. I hear people a lot of times say this. Uh, but now listen, the world, including many Christians, want to keep the name and the ministry of Jesus Christ secret, private, quiet. Now, we don't mind bragging on the things that we do, but when it comes to saying why we do them, that usually gets a footnote at the bottom if, if that's a part of it at all. But I want you to understand this. Ministering in the name of Jesus Christ does not have its maximum empowerment until it's made public. Until the name of Jesus is strongly declared, it never reaches its maximum impact. It's meant to be public. In fact, it's not faith until it's public. I think the book of Acts is proof of that. You hear people talking about this all the time. Listen, I'm not being critical or I'm not trying to be critical, but I hear people say, and I'm guilty of it too, is you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, I think we all know what we mean by that. But the truth of the matter is we need to have a public relationship with Jesus Christ. People say, well, my relationship with Jesus, that's between me and him. Well, see, your relationship with Jesus ought to be between you and everyone who comes into contact with you. Our relationship with Jesus should be demonstrating outwardly who we belong to and why. And I think that's one of Satan's greatest tools uh, that, that paralyzes the church today is he has muted the name of Jesus in the church's public. In fact, many churches minister outside of itself and never mention the name of Jesus. Well, we won't have, we won't have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit unless we do the ministry under the name of Jesus Christ. Ministry really becomes effective once it goes public. But when it becomes effective, now I want you to listen because this is pretty much a formula. When ministry becomes effective, it also draws out criticism. Uh, but I think this sets, sets us up for one of the greatest statements the world has ever heard. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. So we're at verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. Now listen, this isn't an evaporation. I want you to see, he tells us the method that the angel used to open the prison doors. He opened the doors and brought them out and said to them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his, of this life. Now, to me, this is absolutely hilarious. The religious people thought they had control and they arrested them, shut them in, but God released them and told them to get back at it. Now, here's the question that I want to pose to you. Why would God allow them to go through being arrested only to immediately deliver them? Wouldn't it have been easier for them just to have been able to evade arrest? Wouldn't it have been easier to have tied the priest's shoestrings together so that they would fall in the crowds and everyone could get away and then tomorrow we could start all over again? Why would God allow them to go through the threats and the pressure and the fear and the prison and the, the guards and all of those things just to release them almost immediately? And here's the answer. Their faith needed to be tested. Their faith needed to be tried. They needed to be bolstering some confidence and know that God is a deliverer. They, they could believe it all day long, but until it's put to the test, they only could believe it, not experience it. And sometimes our faith needs to be experienced. It's what helps us to walk in more power. It's what helps us to tomorrow to be able to speak boldly, because if He can deliver me today, if it's His will, He'll deliver me tomorrow. Their faith needed to go to prison. And I say that with all appreciation. 
But not only that, but the people who were watching their lives and listening to their message needed to see that. Their faith needed it as well. And probably most importantly, the priests, the chief priests, and all of the religious leaders, they needed to see it too. They needed to see God break the bonds and the shackles that the high priest had put them under to, for them to know this isn't some, these aren't just ordinary, ordinary people. Just know this, that whatever situation that God allows us to be in, He is with us and He is for us. And I think we can take heart in that. So you can bypass this entire story, but I want you to hear this is the foundation of this passage of Scripture. Whatever God allows us to be in, whatever situation He allows us to be in, He is with us and He is for us. And every situation serves His purpose. Verse 21, And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This, this was, again, the most public place they could go to and maybe as important, as soon as they could get there. Now, the angel didn't say when they were to begin teaching again, but these apostles, they weren't wasting any time. The first available opportunity they had, that's where they were headed. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the sin of the people of Israel. Uh, and again, this is the first thing in the morning. What's what they're doing? They're ready for the sentencing. And they sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now listen, this is crazy. The guards have not left. But the angel opened the doors and allowed these men out and then actually directed them and told them what to do next. But these guards were completely oblivious to it. So I can just imagine the conversation. Just follow me there here for a moment. So, okay, they were arrested, right? Yes. They were put into a cell, right? Yes. The, the guards were, the doors were locked? Yes. The, the guards were armed, correct. The guards knew that if they slept, they would be killed? Yes. Okay, great. But in the morning, when you went to get them, the guards were there? Yes. Yes. Okay, they were awake? Yes. The door was locked? Yes. But the guys that you put in the door were not there? Yes. Hmm. I can tell you that that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What are we possibly dealing with here? Verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Well, you reckon? Wondering what this would come to. Now, rather than trying to figure out what makes these men differently, how did, how, different, how did they get out of prison? What power could have allowed this to happen? These aren't the questions they're asking. They're asking, how is, how is, what is this going to come to? How is this going to affect me? See how selfish their thoughts are. Instead of being convicted and being pointed to Jesus, they look back at them themselves. In verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They were told not to preach, but here's the first thing that they're doing in a public spot. And all the captain and the officers brought, uh, went and brought them, but not by force. Now, this, when they get to the temple, to Solomon's portico, I, I, I suspect, to arrest them, when the disciples saw them coming, they willingly surrendered. There was no force needed. But they weren't going to apply force because they were afraid because of the popularity of the apostles that the people might turn on them and start throwing stones at them. 
So let's just go make our faces seen and known. And, and here the disciples are just going back with them willingly. Now, I think this is so important because I want you to contrast them going willingly with how they responded when they were to be arrested in the garden and they ran naked through the woods. These are completely different men. And for they, the officers, were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And they're saying that like it's a negative thing, but the apostles are like, Field, if, if only we could fill Jerusalem with the teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Listen, let me just be a little preachy for a moment and say, there is great power in the name of Jesus. And these men couldn't say his name. They couldn't even bring themselves to say his name. This man, this man. But Peter and the apostles answered. Here's the statement we've been looking for from earlier. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now this is, I just, let me stop for a moment. This is hilarious because the chief priest said, we told you no more sermons. And Peter's like, I I know, I remember you saying that. But since you bring up sermons, I've got a sermon that I would like for you to hear. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, this is the first time that we see this escalation. We move from threats to arrests to imprisonment and now murder. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he he stood up and began to address them. He he probably was the most respected among all of them. In fact, his great-grandfather was one of the founding teachers and had utmost respect around the world. But he began to say to them, and probably with some uh, political spin, but he said, this isn't the first group of people who've risen up to claim that they're the followers of Messiah. And he begins to list at least two other uh, groups of people who rose up in revolt with another man. And he says to them, when this man died, all his followers went away. And then when this man died, all his followers went away. And so with this Jesus, Jesus has already died. So it, 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 let's just give it some time. Let's not do anything. Let's give it time. Because if this is not of God, they'll eventually evaporate. But if they are of God, we can't stop it. And it says that they heeded the advice of Gamaliel, and they only took the apostles... And it says here that they beat them. This is in verse 39 and uh, verse 40. And uh, they beat them. But that word is very interesting. It's the word darrow. And that word darrow actually means to flay the skin. Uh, Some translations actually use the word flog. And so what you have here is the, the flogging that Jesus endured as well, right? This is the 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails, had bone and glass and different shards connected to the end of nine little uh, leather straps, and they would just take it to your back. M- many people didn't even survive the beating, and the reason it was 39 is because the law allowed for 40, but they were afraid that they might miscount. And so let's do one less 
so that if we did miscount, we won't break the law. Now, we don't really care that much about people, but we care a whole lot about counting. So uh, 39 stripes uh, each of these men got, and uh, their, backs, their backs are just ripped open. And he charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But one of the most important verses, I think, is right here in verse 41. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, this is called civil disobedience. We should always obey authority unless that authority directs us to disobey God because we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, this whole passage is about are we willing, what are we willing to do for the glory of God and how the Holy Spirit empowers us for His glory and what gets in our way. And the truth is, this passage is truly about fear and what we're going to do with fear. Fear is a byproduct of a life without empowerment. Christians struggle with it too. Real ministry in the face of opposition is a byproduct of empowerment. Now, there are two stories being told here, how the religious are in bondage to fear and can't see beyond themselves, and the apostles, who because of the empowerment can't see themselves any longer. For religious people, it's not about helping people. It's about maintaining control. For religious people aren't interested in lost people, broken people, you know, the heart and the mind and the will of God. Think about it. Jesus was always preaching. He would be teaching. He was healing. He's doing all the same stuff. Loving, saving, healing, delivering lost people, non-Christians, welcoming them, helping them, embracing them. And religious people would just walk up and interrupt him. And they wanted attention. And they would change the, the topic of conversation. And immediately, while Jesus is ministering to hurting people, what do the religious do? They want to talk about tithing. They want to talk about Sabbath days. They want to talk about heads of grain. They want to talk about theology. They want to talk about divorce. They want to talk about issues. All around them are hurting people, but they can't see hurting people. They only see themselves. They cause a lot of interruptions. They cause a lot of disruptions. Religious people want to argue. They want to fight. They want power. They want control. They want every bit of attention on them. But Jesus and Jesus' ministry is about helping people, serving people, loving people, healing people, delivering people, reconciling broken people to God. Look back at verse 26. You see, when you fear God, there's freedom. When you fear men, there's jealousy. When you fear God, there's joy. When you fear men, there's perplexing. When you fear God, there's ministry. When you fear men, there's distractions. When you fear God, you give. When you fear men, you take. There is a freedom that is the result of living out fearing God. But there is a bondage as a result of living out fearing men. And the Bible is filled with examples of how of, of men and women who suffered from fear of men. I think a specific illustration of that, and we're almost finished, but it's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
And God had told Samuel to tell Saul to go to the Amalekites and to take King Agag and to kill him and all the people and all of their livestock and to destroy everything that they have. But when King Saul went to them and he, he, he took uh, Agag as a prisoner of war and all of the people took the best things, they destroyed the things that were not of value but they kept the things that were valuable, the sheep and the donkeys and all of the livestock that had value to them. And Saul couldn't bring himself to kill the other king. And so when when Samuel came to Saul to question his decision, he said, did you do what God said to do? And Samuel said, yes, or uh, Saul said, yes, I certainly did. And Samuel, this is hilarious. Samuel said, then why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep and the, the mooing of the cows? And Saul said, well, uh, we kept back some of the good things to be able to, to sacrifice back to God. Samuel said, that wasn't what God asked you to do. Well, I know, but that's what the people wanted. I want you to see how, how Saul moves from lying. He goes to, to uh, distractions, to excuses, to defenses, blaming other people. And then finally, verse 24, he said, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word, Samuel. Listen to this. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul was then rejected by God. Saul did not fear God or he would have obeyed God. Instead, who did he fear? Men. One more example that Jesus gave in John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Let's just, I'll just read that. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You know, Jesus was different. And then he placed that difference inside of each one of us as we pledge to live our lives for him. And that difference empowers us. The apostles are a great commercial for us to watch and to prove that possibility. They didn't fear man, but rather feared God. One of the greatest hindrances to our empowerment is to live for the applause of men, which will always lead us to fear. And we should be living for the applause of God Almighty. Matthew twenty two sixteen, And they sent their disciples to, the, to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Listen to this, talking about Jesus. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Are you swayed by appearances? Opinions? What other people think about you? Is that why we remain quiet? Maybe, maybe sometimes we put too much weight on our own opinion of ourselves. And maybe this holds us back. Do you need man's approval? I mean, who really or what really controls you? Where do you place your trust? In the approval of men or the approval of God? For whose glory do you live? God's or man's? If the opinions of people is what's going to drive your obedience, then you can never be consistently obedient. God's will will never be popular among people. You can't wait until you're the majority to be able to speak boldly the glories of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're worried about what other people are going to think of you, you'll never fully obey God. But we ought to obey God 
rather than men. Proverbs 29:25 says, "The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe." I pray that we would be a people of God that does not listen to the opinions of men, but we listen to the will of God and we obey him completely. What does God want for us? How does he want us to live? What does He want our influence and our fruit to look like? And may we not let anything stand in our way to give Him His greatest glory. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word uh, this morning. And we just ask Your blessings again over the reading of it. May Your Holy Spirit find entry into the, the parts of our heart that's not fully surrendered yet. We love You and we thank You for the empowerment that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.